Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. Now, as we come to a text like this, this morning, verses 30 through to 38, You know, rather than think, oh, okay, you know, this is, there's some gross immorality that's mentioned here, so we'll just skip over it. What we must do instead is understanding that this too is the Word of God. We must ask the question, what, what, why is this passage here? What we see in this passage is the last chapter of Lot's life. And if you remember just a few weeks ago as as God appeared to Abraham and told Abraham as part of his covenant obligation, it was to teach his household the way of the Lord. That as he came to know more and more about the Lord, that his responsibility, his obligation was then to teach it to his household and from generation to generation it would be passed down. And we saw of how even the story of the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah served as an object lesson of a people when they reject the way of the Lord and they follow their own heart and their own whims and fancies, the judgment that will come their way. It was an object lesson of what would happen if that were to take place. It would be a reminder to the nation of Israel as well of that. As Abraham would pass it down to his children and they would pass it down to their children and their children and their children. But then you think of the life of Lot. And the life of Lot too is an object lesson. On the one side, Lot's life is an encouragement. You see, despite Lot's compromises, as we saw some of it last week, He was still considered a righteous person in God's eyes. Why? As we saw last week, because the righteousness that he possessed was a righteousness that God had granted him through, ultimately through Jesus Christ. It was by faith. It was not by what he did. And yet, even as we saw last week, there were some there were some evidences that he was indeed a person who had put his trust in the Lord. We saw how he wasn't like the Sodomites. He didn't engage in that kind of immoral activity. We saw how when the angels came to Sodom, he was hospitable to them and even sought to protect them. He was caring for others. He wasn't self-centered. 
And then we saw of how when the angel said that the judgment of the Lord was coming, he indeed believed the angels. And as much as he lingered for a little bit, he ultimately obeyed and trusted that God was able to save him and his family, so he fleed. He fleed from Sodom, and then ultimately he came to Zoar. And so in one sense, Lot's life serves as an encouragement to all believers. That ultimately, that to be counted righteous in God's eyes, it is something that God does, and, we, and that righteousness comes by faith, and it's not anything that we do, even though there's, there has to be some evidence of that faith in God. But at the same time, the passage here this morning, as we come to the, the last chapter of Lot's life, this now serves as a warning. A warning of what happens to God's people when they compromise and assimilate into the world. You see, it would serve as a warning to the Israelites as they're preparing. Remember, they, they hear the first five books being read to them in the plains of Moab as they're, as they're planning to enter the land of Canaan and conquer the land of Canaan. And so this story of Lot would remind the Israelites, including the children, to not assimilate to not assimilate according to the way of the Canaanites as they enter the land. And to even think of the warning of what kind of impact it would have for coming generations. And so, by implication even for us, this passage here this morning serves as a warning of what happens to believers if they compromise and go away from God's means of grace and try to assimilate into the world. It also serves as a warning of how that kind of compromised life can impact the rest of the family. I've titled this morning's sermon as The Compromised Life of Lot. And we're going to look at this under two headings. The impact of compromise on self in verse 30. And then secondly, the impact of compromise on the family in verses 31 through 38. So firstly, the impact of compromise on self. Verse 30. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters. For he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. Daughters. 
Now, I want you to think about what has just happened. Of the five cities in the Jordan Valley, Zoar is only a little city. And the Lord has just rained down his judgment in the form of fire and brimstone on on the four of the cities because of the pervasive wickedness that was rampant there. And the only reason this little city of Zoar was spared is because Lot, who was a believer, was there in Zoar. Remember, this Zoar too was penciled in to be destroyed as per Genesis 19, 21 and 22. And so the only reason Zoar was spared was because Lot, who was a believer, was there in Zoar. And what a awful and terrible experience it would have been as the judgment of God came down. Fire falling from the sky, incinerating everything around. Everything around is being incinerated. And you're standing in this little place which is spared, but everything around then becomes a charred graveyard. I mean, to be that close to the judgment of God, that would have been something. I mean, it's like, you know, when you're at the train station and you're on the platform, and the closer you are to that yellow line as the train comes and the train passes by, you, you feel the impact of the train. It would have been something like that for the people of Zoar as, as they are in this little place when everything around you, all life, is decimated, including plant life. And there's still smoke all around. And Lot is in Zohar. He's just come to Zohar. And Lot has not only lost his sons-in-laws, but he's also lost his only wife. God's judgment. So God's judgment would have been very vivid in Lot's mind. And now as Lot has come to Zoar, which is really a mini Sodom. Why do I say it's a a mini Sodom? Because again, remember this place was penciled in to be destroyed as well. Because of their wickedness. And as he comes to Zohar, for starters, I'm sure the people of Zohar would have wondered how it is that only Lot and his daughters survived while everyone else outside of Zohar was killed. It would have, at the very least, raised some suspicions. 
And then on top of that, for, for Lot, seeing the life of Zoar, which was just like Sodom. Lot may have feared that because the people now here in Zoar are just as wicked as Sodom, God's judgment similarly could fall on Zoar. And so Lot is fearful and miserable. And so he gets out of Zohar immediately and goes up to live in the hills. Now remember, the angels had originally told him to run to the hills. That's why they first told him to go. And it was Lot's idea to go to Zohar. But now Lot finally goes there. But again, I want you to think about what Lot's doing here. He's not going to the hills because now he's trusting the Lord. Remember, the Lord said, Lot, okay, I grant you this. You go to Zohar and you will be safe there. But now he doesn't stay in Zohar but he goes to the hills, not because he's trusting God, but because he's fearful of staying in Zohar. Again, here, what you see Lot doing is he's basing his decisions not on what God has said. But he's just driven by his fear and every other fleshly thing that's coming out of him. And notice, it says that he lives in a cave in the hills. Now, caves in those days were places that were either used as tombs or it was used as a hiding place for refugees. When people were hiding from, say, uh, from a certain country or from war or something like that, the place they would hide were caves. Because caves were generally dark places and it would provide the, the perfect place to be totally isolated from everyone. And this is where Lot is now living. Lot has lost everything that he has lived for in his life. And now he's living in a dark cave with his two daughters away from everyone else. How did Lot get here? How did a believer like Lot, somebody who's righteous in God's eyes, how did he get here? Well, to understand this, we need to go back and trace Lot's life a little bit. Now, if you remember, the, the Lord had come to Abraham, who was an idol worshiper, who lived in, in Babylon, right? Ur of the Chaldeans, where is that? In Babylon. And so there the Lord appeared to Abraham and commanded him to leave everything behind, including his family, uh, essentially saying, leave that old lifestyle that belongs to that worldly lifestyle 
and follow me. And together with the, at that point, the Lord also promised Abraham certain things. And what we see is that Abraham's nephew, Lot, is with Abraham the whole time. Even when the Lord has told Abraham to cut off ties and move from that worldly environment that he was in, we see Lot is there with Abraham. Even when he leaves from Ur to, to Haran, and even as he leaves Haran, we see Lot is there with him. And it would seem to indicate that sometime around that time, Lot also became a believer. And he's taken along with Abraham while the rest of the family is left behind. And what we saw then after that is by associating with Abraham, Lot began to get rich. Why was he getting rich? Because this was part of the special promise that God had given to Abraham. That blessings would flow out to others through Abraham, which also included material blessings. And then we saw in Genesis 13 that because of the abundance of riches that Abraham and Lot had, Tensions arose between Abraham and Lot's herdsmen regarding the use of land for pasture and for water because there was not enough land and space for all of the flocks and herds. So then Abraham then humbly offers first pick of the land so that there wouldn't be any tensions between them. And what does Lot do? Lot picks the most luscious area down the valley where Sodom and Gomorrah was. We can say at this point, all Lot is thinking is about himself. He's not particularly thinking about his uncle Abraham, who is far richer and has got a much larger herd and flock than he has. But then beyond that, here's what I want you to also think of. Sodom was known, even at that time, to be an exceedingly wicked place. In Genesis 13, 13, it says that the people there were exceedingly wicked before the Lord. So this was a known fact even then. And yet, Lot, Sodom. Why? Because he's simply going by what is appealing to his flesh. The riches, the comfort, the ease that Sodom will offer. He's not thinking of how wicked and a vile place Sodom is. He's not thinking of the kind of spiritual impact that it will have. See, Lot is not thinking, I need to stay close to my uncle because the Lord has come to him and revealed himself to him. 
I need to be where the Lord has revealed himself. I need to be where the word of God is and where his plans and purposes have been revealed. Lot's not thinking that. Lot's not thinking, I need to stay where the people of God are and where the, the word of God is. He's not thinking, I need to stay in the promised land. But he goes away from all of that to the outskirts of the land and even beyond what God has promised, away from God's people, away from the land that God has promised, and away from God's revelation. Then we come to Genesis 14. And here, the Lord gave Lot, in a sense, a warning that should have caused him to reconsider his stay in Sodom. Remember, four powerful kings from the east came and captured the cities of the valley, and the whole place was plundered, and the people of the valley were taken as prisoners of war, Lot included. And then Abraham, if you remember, with a couple of his allies and 318 of his trained men, went and fought these four powerful kings of the east and brought back all the prisoners of the war along with their possessions. I mean, this was really a supernatural work of God. Because Abraham could not have defeated these powerful kings all by himself with the kind of army of men that he had. It was really the supernatural work of God. And then if you remember, the king of Sodom and Melchizedek met with Abraham as he was returning from the battle. And the king of Sodom, who came out basically from hiding, proposes to Abraham, Hey, Abraham, you can keep all the goods, but just return the people to me. And how did Abraham respond? Abraham basically says, you can keep everything, the people and the goods. Essentially, he was saying, I don't want to be associated with you or Sodom in any way. Why? Why did Abraham do that? Because Abraham knew how wicked Sodom was, including Sodom's king. And so he wanted absolutely no association with Sodom. So think about Lot at this point. Despite being taken captive and being freed by the grace of God through Abraham, despite the great example and testimony of his uncle Abraham to be not associated with Sodom in any way, Lot doesn't leave Sodom. He doesn't go back with his uncle. He doesn't go back to the land of promise. He doesn't go back to the people of God. Instead, Lot goes straight back to Sodom. And then he fully settles in Sodom, even becomes one of the officials of Sodom. And then he was there for many years, and we saw some of that last week. See, being away from Abraham and being away from God's revealed will and purpose, together with the influence of Sodom in Lot's life for 
such a long time caused Lot to live a compromised life. And we saw some of this last week as well. While there was some evidence that Lot was a believer in what he did, his spiritual compass was going haywire. He's not thinking straight spiritually. Even when the angels asked him to get out of Sodom before the judgment of the Lord comes, even though he believed, he still lingered. See, because the riches and the ease and the comfort of Sodom has become so important to Lot that the spiritual matters became foggy in Lot's mind. And it was the same reason for why he petitioned to go to little Zoar, because it was a mini Sodom. And now we see Lot living in a cave with nothing. He lost everything that he lived for. Everything Lot gave his time and energy, his riches, his comfort, his place of prominence, it is all gone. And he's totally isolated with, from everyone with nothing in a dark cave afraid. And what is even more sad about this scene is that Lot doesn't return to his uncle Abraham where the blessing of God is found. Where the people of God are and the revelation of God is still there. What you see here is that Unlike the prodigal son who, when he came to a point of nothing, came to his senses and returned back to his loving father, Lot doesn't return to Abraham. Perhaps it was Lot's pride. Or maybe it was shame that he lost everything. Either way, Lot doesn't return to Abraham and he's certainly not thinking straight at all. What do we make of Lot's life? See, what we see is that in Lot's life is that he's made dozens and dozens, if not hundreds, of foolish choices based on what appealed to him from an earthly or worldly point of view, rather than make choices based on God's word or make choices from a spiritual point of view. See, the issue with Lot is not that he wanted riches or comfort or ease. I mean, we all want those things to some extent, right? Nobody willfully wants to be dirt poor or to live a difficult life. So the problem wasn't that he wanted those things. But the problem was that Lot loved those things so much 
that he foolishly neglected spiritual priorities when it should have been the other way around. When his first priority should have always been spiritual and everything else should have been secondary. So here's some things to consider as we are making decisions. Rather than thinking first and foremost, hey, uh, this is going to make me rich. Or, or this is going to help me have a significant place in society. Or this is going to make my life more comfortable and more at ease. Nothing wrong with any of those things in of itself. But what we need to ask first and foremost is, how is this decision going to impact me spiritually? See, in the pursuit of trying to figure out uh, what am I going to study or where am I going to study, in the pursuit of finding a job, in the pursuit of where I'm going to live, in the pursuit of trying to find a spouse, the first question that you and I need to ask is, how is this decision going to impact me spiritually? Because if you neglect to give first priority to the spiritual, the things of the Lord, it may have an impact on your life that you may regret for the rest of your life. Now in case some of you are thinking, oh, you know what, I, I usually ask myself this question, how is this going to impact me spiritually before every decision that I make? So I'm all good here. And besides, I, I go to a church where the Word of God is preached and uh, perhaps you, you know, you're part of this church or you're part of another church, so I, I'm all good. But brother and sister, I, I want to ask you just one more question. Are you living with the people of God? Now, I don't mean by that whether you are attending a church gathering. I mean, are you living life in such a way where you're opening your heart and life to other brothers and sisters in your church family? Where they know how you're doing spiritually? Where they see your life? If you're not, brother, sister, let, let me just tell you, as loving as I can be, you are essentially living in a metaphorical cave, isolated from God's people. If that's not how you're living. See, living life together with the Lord's people, opening our hearts and our lives to others, is God's means of caring for us and, and protecting us. Where when we are making wrong decisions, there are others around us telling us why that's not a wise decision. Where when we are living in sin or perhaps tempted to sin, there are others who care for us and lovingly point us back to Christ. 
where when we are hurting or troubled, there are others around us who know what's going on in our lives and then who care for us and minister to us and encourage us in the Lord. This is God's design and means for caring for us and protecting us through the church. And the more we move away from God's design of living this way, we are moving away from God's ordinary means of care and protection over our lives, spiritually speaking. And it will negatively impact you spiritually, regardless of whether you realize it right now or many years later. You know, perhaps there's some of you listening and you've been hurt by the church. Let me tell you, brother, sister, most of us have been hurt by the church. Why? Because the church is ultimately made of sinful people like you and me. And that's why we all still need Jesus Christ. Because if we were perfectly sinless by ourselves, then we wouldn't need Christ. There's no perfect church this side of glory. And so let me tell you, brother, sister, just because you have been hurt by the church, it doesn't mean, therefore, you do not be with the people of God again. That we never do life with God's people again. Because to be with God's people and live life together is God's very design and means to care for you and to protect you through imperfect people who follow Jesus Christ. And to walk away from that design that God has designed of living within the church body this way, let me tell you lovingly, brother or sister, it will have a terrible impact on your soul whether you realize it or not. When you look at Lot's life, He separated himself from Abraham and went far, far away from him and that household where God's people were. And if you think about it, if Lot had been with Abraham, he would have been cared for and protected from the influence of Sodom. But sadly, Lot walked away from God's ordinary means of spiritual care and protection. Yes, Lot didn't live in overt wickedness like the Sodomites. He didn't worship other idols like the Sodomites. But he kept making foolish decisions. One after the other, little ones, ignoring the spiritual 
and lived a compromised life. And it so impacted his life spiritually that we find him now in the last chapter of his life living in a cave, afraid and isolated from everyone. So now we move from the impact of compromise on self to the impact of compromise on the family, verses 31 through 38. Now as we look at these verses, just one of the things that I just want to, I just want us to realize, as we consider the vileness of the sin and the, and the influence of the world, We might be tempted to think as we read this section that, oh, so then if I just run away from the world, you know, go to the remotest part of the world, away from everything, things will just get better. You know, there won't be any issue of sin or wickedness. But let me tell you again, brother, sister, that, that, that's not right thinking either, as we will see in this section. See, because the problem ultimately is not on the outside, but it's on the inside. It's the sin in our hearts. But yes, certainly the world can have a huge influence on that sinful heart. We are to live in this world because there's no... Nowhere to go. You can't go to another planet and live. But, so we are to live in this world, but we're not to adopt the values and standards of this world. And so Lot and his daughters are living in a cave in the hills, isolated from anything like Sodom as well. And now what's this, the sinfulness of the heart comes out even in such an isolated place. Look at verse 31. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is not old. Uh, pardon me. Our father is old and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Now in those days it was all arranged marriages organized by the family. And so the concern for the older daughter now is as they're living in the cave, that they're so isolated from the rest of the world and they can see that their father is not in a good place and he's getting old and, uh, and he's too poor. He hardly has anything with him. So... You know, who's going to get married to them now? Who's going to take care of them when they start getting old? I mean, will they not have any children and continue the family line and so that they can be looked after as well? Or is this it for them? Are they all just going to die in this cave, isolated from the world, along with their father? Again, here we would think 
if you just think, if Lot was in a good place spiritually, he could have easily thought about men from Abraham's household. But he doesn't. And so what do the daughters do? They take things into their own hands and come up with a plan. Verse 32. Come, let us make our father drink wine and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. A couple of things to note here. There's nothing wrong with wanting to have children. That's the desire that these girls had. But the problem is this. Instead of bringing their request to the Lord, they're willing to even sin and commit one of the most heinous sins to bring this about. And notice, their plan is first to get their father drunk before they lie with him. And so that would mean that the girls knew that this was wrong. That it was something that they had to get their father drunk first, otherwise it wouldn't happen. If their father was sober, this would be something that he wouldn't agree to. And I would say this also, in some sense, I guess, speaks of the evidence of Lot's righteousness, as compromised as he is. Some evidence of it. And it's interesting here that, you know, despite having nothing, they have wine. And I, I, I would think that, you know, probably that Lot brought it along to escape from reality and just really drown his sorrows. So the girls ca carry out their plan and get Lot drunk. And really this whole section has some echoes with Noah after the flood. See, just like after God's judgment of flood, Noah gets drunk, after the judgment of fire on Sodom, Lot gets drunk. Just like Noah's drunkenness then was associated with the sin of one of his children, here Lot's drunkenness is associated with the sin of his daughters. So what does it imply? That despite seeing God's judgment, despite coming so close to God's judgment, Man's sin problem is still very much alive. See, Lot's daughters witness God's judgment of fire on Sodom and Gomorrah. And still, even after this, they are now going to commit a despicable sin that would have been considered as perhaps an acceptable thing in Sodom. Look at verses 33 to 36. So they made their father drink wine that night. 
And the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day the father said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. You know, it's almost like they're trying to justify their sin. Oh, it's to preserve the, the, you know, the line. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. See, this is gross immorality that they have committed. You know, maybe the girls thought, you know, after all, our father offered us to the angry mob outside our door because he was in a desperate situation. And now we too are in a desperate situation, and so this calls for desperate measures. I mean, how else are we going to have uh, children if there are no other men around? And, and then to think about Lot being so drunk that he has no idea that all this happens twice. I mean, that's also telling of where Lot is at. Here's how one commentator uh, described it. Quote, The impact of the unit, talking about this section, Focus more directly on the characterization of the father. The one who offered his daughters for the sexual gratification of his wicked neighbors now becomes the object of his daughter's incestuous relationship. To be seduced by one's own daughters into an incestual relationship with pregnancy following is bad enough. Not to know that the seduction had occurred is worse. To fall prey to the whole plot a second time is worse than ever. In tragic irony, a drunk lot carried out the very act which he himself had suggested to the men of Sodom. He lay with his own daughters. Close quote. How can this happen? I mean, how can this happen to a believer and his family? How could the girls have done such a despicable sin? Well, first of all, the, the sin, that's from their own hearts. But yes, they would have been exposed to such perversion in the city of Sodom that they grew up in. But secondly, what I want you to see is that Lot is passive in all of this. And because, his pass, because he is passive, his daughters take the lead. And his daughters get him drunk. And then finally sleep with him. And it would seem like that's how Lot has been all along, passive in following the Lord and passive in leading his family.
Second Peter 2.8, as we saw last week, said that inwardly Lot's soul was tormented daily by all that he saw and heard in Sodom. Okay, so daily he's tormented by all the wickedness that he's seeing and hearing in Sodom. But outwardly, he doesn't do anything about it. He's just passive. He simply tried to find a middle ground because he loved the riches and comforts of Sodom and the prominent position he had, just ignoring the spiritual. Listen to one commentator on Lot's actions. Quote, Outwardly, Lot said little or nothing as he became a prominent man in Sodom. Forthrightness would have jeopardized his standing. Lot had mastered the craft of turning a blind eye and a deaf ear to the social and sexual abuses of Sodom. He did not do them, he did not approve of them, but he did not speak out against them. Blasphemies and filthy speech were met by Lot's benign smile and deft deflection. Close quote. See, Lot was passive in following the Lord, and he was passive in bringing up his family in the ways of the Lord. See, because if his soul was tormented daily about the wickedness of Sodom, and if he was being active spiritually as a spiritual head of the home, and thinking about the spiritual well-being of his family, he would have left Sodom way back in the day and not stayed there for that long. And also, if you remember from last week, his two daughters were engaged to be married to Sodomite men. The very men who were part of the mob who wanted to sexually assault his guests. And again, think, this is the time when there's arranged marriages between families. So perhaps either the boys or, or maybe the families of the boys approached Lot. Whatever it may have been, what we do know is that his daughters were engaged to these Sodomite men. He wasn't actively caring for the spiritual well-being of his daughters. You know, I've been going through First Kings in my morning reading. And, uh, you know, before that it was thinking of how Samuel and Eli were not essentially passive fathers. And it struck me that even about King David and about his son Adonijah, this is what it says in 1 Kings 1.6. His father, so speaking about Adonijah's father, and Adonijah's father is David. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, why have you done thus and so? 
In other words, David was passive in his role as a father. And his son grows up to be a very unruly and a self-centered man. I want to ask the fathers here some questions as I've tried to ask myself these questions this week. I mean, you get only one hour of this. I get quite a few hours of this during the week. Fathers, how are you functioning as the spiritual head of the home? Are you caring and protecting the spiritual well-being of your family? Are you simply being passive and neglecting your God-given role? Are you only thinking of providing your children with the best education and the opportunities to succeed and do well in life? And there's nothing wrong with that. It's good and right for fathers to do that. But are you only thinking about that or are you also thinking about what is best for your children spiritually? Are you leading your family and teaching your family the ways of the Lord? Are you scrutinizing the kind of influences coming into your family? Are you striving to grow and mature in the faith or are you simply being passive on cruise control mode as a spiritual leader of the home? Are there things in your life you know you need to change for the spiritual well-being of your family? But you're just putting it aside. Maybe even adjustments to the way you spend your time. I know I certainly need to make some changes in my life. So here's the bottom line. If we are going to spiritually just float, then our families will also float spiritually and it will have disastrous effects. And it's not just what we talk about, just the words that we speak. It's also the way we live our lives outside the home and inside the home. See, the way we live our life can also impact the rest of the family. It can influence the way the rest of our family think about God and Christ and what the Bible says. See, if you're a Christian father or a mother and you're being patient and, and, and loving and kind and forgiving and protective and rebuking when necessary and disciplining when necessary, that child, as that child grows up in that environment, is reminded in some sense of what God is like and what Christ is like. Because when you tell them that, that, that Jesus is caring, they see somebody in front of them who is like that. When you tell them that Jesus is loving and protective, they have somebody in front of that, front of them to relate to. 
When you say Jesus is forgiving, they have somebody to relate to in front of their eyes. And they realize more and more even experientially of who God is and of who Jesus is because of the way you are living your life in the home. And it's not just to children, it's to our spouses, siblings. It, it, it goes everywhere. And what it does is the way we live our life then gives more validation and meaning to the God that we say we believe in. It gives more validation and meaning to the Christ we say we follow. It gives validation and meaning to the gospel we say that is continually changing our lives. But when there is a huge disparity between what we say we believe in and how we live our lives in front of our family, it will also have a negative impact on them spiritually. Now, let me also just say this. I know none of us ever reflect Christ perfectly on this side of glory. I mean, none of us do this perfectly. So we're not talking about perfection. But when we do mess up in front of our family, when we are being unchristlike, then do we then ask forgiveness from our children? Do we ask forgiveness from our spouses? See, because this is another way in which we can show to others in our family and outside our family that while we are still imperfect people, we still want to love and honor the Lord Jesus, the very Lord Jesus that we say is Lord and Savior of our lives. It gives validation to that. Now, I, I also want to just point out that while Lot had great parental responsibility in, in bringing up his daughters in the way of the Lord, and he failed in it by being passive, the daughters are also responsible for their actions and their lives. Yes, it was definitely the influence of Sodom on their lives, as they would have seen and heard of the vile sins that were there. But ultimately, these daughters, they committed this deplorable sin because of the wickedness in their own heart. Nobody forced them against their will to do it. They willingly did it. And so God will hold them responsible for their actions just as he does each and every person. So while fathers and parents have a huge role in bringing up the children in the ways of the Lord, at the same time, as the child grows, God will hold each individual person accountable for their own life. So if you're a growing child here, I want you to know this. 
while your parents have a big role in bringing you up in the ways of the Lord, God will still hold you individually accountable and responsible for the way you live your life. And you will not be able to excuse your sinful life and actions as you grow up simply pointing back to your parents. So children must also heed this warning and take care. So really, here's the warning for both the young and the old from this passage. What we surround ourselves with will influence us. Don't underestimate the influence of the world that it will have on our thinking and our lives. What we take in with our eyes, what we take in in our ears, what we listen to, what we do with our free time, the kind of people that we hang out with can all influence us. Now, if you're thinking, oh, so Benoit, are you saying then we just totally stay away from the world? No, we are to still live in this world. We are to still interact with the unbelieving world. We are to still be a witness to the unbelieving world. But we are not, but if we are not actively being a witness for the Lord, then the world will influence us. If we're going to remain passive, you can be assured that the world will invariably influence you. See, if the reason why Lot went to Sodom was to witness to the Lord, and he was mindful of that daily, and he was actively doing that, then we would have a very different story in the Bible. But he went to Sodom simply thinking of the temporal, disregarding the spiritual. And he was passive, and bit by bit he compromised and was influenced by Sodom without even realizing it. Romans 12.2 says this, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. See, as we diligently spend time in the Word and our minds are regularly washed in the Word, that's a way in which, you know, we're less likely conform to the mold of the world. And aside from the Word of God, spending time in prayer and seeking the Lord and depending on Him and being with the church family, these are all God's ordinary means of grace to care and protect His people from going the way of the world. And the more we neglect these means, the world will have a stronger influence on us. Lot left the ordinary means of grace that God had provided for his spiritual care and protection. He was passive, and Sodom influenced him over time, and it invariably also influenced his daughters, and they commit this deplorable sin of incest. 
Look at the last three verses. Verse 36. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. So Lot's daughters got what they wanted. They became pregnant by their father, and each of them bore a son. The first one was named Moab, and Moab means from father. And it's an appropriate name in one sense, right? Because this son was got from the father. But here's the irony. In this case, Lot is now both the father and the grandfather. That's how perverted it is. And then the second son was named Ben-Ami, which means son of my kinsman. So both these names reflect the fact that they were children born from their father and their closest kinsmen. And from these two children would come two groups of people, the Moabites and the Ammonites, two ungodly wicked nations. And these two people groups would become enemies of the nation of Israel. The consequences of Lot's failure would result in generations of trouble. But two things I also want to emphasize as we finish this sad and confronting and, and this passage that serves as a warning where we see some evidence of the grace of God. First, a failure like this was still righteous in God's eyes. Oh, the grace of God. But secondly, we also see the grace of God in the mess of all this. Because many years later from the Moabite people group, God would call out Ruth, the Moabitess. Ruth, who would marry Boaz, who would then become the great-grandmother of King David, and from whose line would come the Lord Jesus Christ. Of all the people that God could have used to bring forth the Lord Jesus, he uses Lot and the mess and the consequences that he's brought about. And from that lineage, he brings about the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, the grace of our Lord. I wonder if there's anyone here this morning who's not a Christian. 
Perhaps you've grown up in a family that is not particularly nice. Maybe you've grown up in a broken family. Maybe you've grown up in a family that was compromised. Maybe you had a terrible childhood or still having a terrible childhood. And maybe now you're just confused and bitter and maybe just resigned that your life too will just also be this, this mindless life of sin with no hope. Let me tell you, friend, no matter what your background has been, God's grace is still available to you through Jesus Christ. See, God sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come into this world, into this sin-cursed world as a human being. And He lived a perfect life despite all the difficulties of living in this sin-cursed world. And then Jesus died on the cross, taking the wrath of God on himself for the sin of people like you and me. And then he rose up on the third day, paying the full price for the forgiveness of sins. So friend, I want to tell you today, there is hope for you. The blood of Jesus is able to wash you clean of all your sins. Regardless of your background, regardless of how your family has been, there is still hope for you because of Jesus. And you, through Jesus, are able, will be able to live in the newness of life that He only can give. Turn to Jesus today and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and what He has done on the cross. And if you truly believe, then turn away from your sin and relying on yourself and rely on the Lord Jesus and follow hard after Him because that is the evidence that you have truly put your trust in Him. For those of us who are Christians, let us heed the warning of Lot's life. And let us rely on God's means of grace that He has given us and depend on them. And let us be active, not passive, in following the Lord Jesus in this world and leading our families in His ways. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your Word that instructs us, rebukes us, convicts us, exhorts us, encourages us and we thank you for this passage and even for the the warning from the ruined life of Lot we pray that we would take this to heart that we would continue to depend on your ordinary means of grace help us to rely on you and continue to live actively in this world following Jesus and leading our families in his ways. We ask all these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. Amen.